You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. God's holy word is the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of Yahweh, the ark of God, dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. But that same night, Yahweh, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I, give, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh and said, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord Yahweh. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord Yahweh. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord Yahweh. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. 
Therefore you are great, O Yahweh God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Yahweh, became their God. And now, O Yahweh God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord Yahweh, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord Yahweh, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, praise be to you for your covenant promises come to fullness in Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God. And now, in light of them, may we be as humbled in awe of you, as David is here. And may our hearts be lifted up in petition and praise, because you're worthy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. O. Palmer Robertson, in commenting on Psalm 2, where we see God's throne, and the throne of his king as a singular entity, says, by the merger of God's throne with David's throne, Old Testament experience of redemption reached its apex. All the remainder of redemptive history in the Old Testament era throughout the critical days of Israel's succession of kings and prophets, including its exile and restoration, was lived out under God's covenant with David. Indeed, God's Previous covenantal relations with his people had their continuing significance, as the Psalms themselves demonstrate. But in terms of a redemptive historical perspective, a major distinctive of the book of Psalms is its unfolding of the central aspects of God's covenant with David, which may be characterized as the covenant of the kingdom. So the Davidic covenant, he's arguing, is the pinnacle the high point, the apex of Old Testament revelation. Another author, 
says that 2 Samuel 7 constitutes an ideological summit for the Old Testament as a whole. To grasp what's being communicated by both of these authors, think of it this way. Yes, there's a lot of revelation that comes in the, in the ages ahead. But all the other prophets basically have two messages. They will speak as God's covenant prosecutors, showing where Israel has violated the covenant. And they will hold out hope. The hope of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David. They hold out this hope in reference to the Davidic covenant. They have two messages. They concern the Mosaic covenant and how Israel has broken it. And the Davidic covenant and how God will keep it. Robertson said that, yes, all the other covenants have a continuing and abiding significance. But it's for that very reason that the magnitude, the climactic significance of the Davidic covenant can be seen. These covenants are not independent. They are intertwined. They build on top of one another. The Davidic covenant is the castle set on top of the hill of Old Testament revelation. Jonathan Lehman brings out the significance well, stating, just as the Mosaic covenant was to administer the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, so the Davidic covenant assigned the king the task of administrating the people's obedience Of the Mosaic Covenant. Cut out a a lot of all the specificity there. And I, I think it still stands. As the Mosaic Covenant administered the Abrahamic Covenant to the nation. The Davidic Covenant was to administer the Mosaic Covenant. It builds on top of it. And then further. All of God's covenant dealings with man. Have progressively revealed more and more. Of his ultimate plan. They're all covenants of promise, as Ephesians 2 tells us. They're all covenants of promise. And this is the last covenant of promise before the new covenant promised comes into, its, into, into bloom. So this is the last covenant of promise. It's the Old Testament coming to its fullest covenantal revelation before the new covenant. In the Old Testament... If it's, or if the Old Testament is likened to the stem holding forth this bud of promise, it's now with the Davidic covenant that we see exactly what kind of flower is to bloom. Man, made in the image of God, made to have dominion, man as this fallen king is to be redeemed by the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And now we realize that that seed is the seed of David who will defeat the enemies of the people of God. The seed of Abraham through whom the world is to be blessed, now we see, is specifically the seed of David whose victories will usher God's people in to the promised inheritance. By the king, the kingdom will come. God's people in God's place under God's rule forever 
blessedly so. Now, as with the covenant of creation, when we look at this account, we don't see the word covenant anywhere here. But this is clearly a covenant as the rest of Scripture makes plain. Nowhere more so than Psalm 89 where four times these promises spoken of here are said to be a covenant. One instance will suffice for now. Psalm 89, 3-4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So this is... This is clearly a covenant as the Scriptures speak of it. And turning our attention to the text itself, it opens with David's proposal, this plan, verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 17, we see a counter-proposal, a rejection of David's plan as God gives His promise concerning what He will do. And then it closes with David bringing praises before God and petitions. So the proposal, verses 1 through 3, and as we look at it, we shouldn't be quick to rush by the setting here. When the king lived in his house and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king lived in his house. Think how very little house dwelling David has enjoyed up to this point in his life. God will soon remind him that He took him from shepherding his father's flock. The ground was often his bed. The sky, the roof. And the cedars so sparse, you couldn't really say there were any walls. As his house then. David was soon, yes, to spend time in Saul's house. But you quickly get the impression that he was as often out of it as he was in it, fighting the Lord's battles, gaining victory after victory, such that the women of Israel would sing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, 1 Samuel 18, 7. And as a result of those kind of songs, David would not be in Saul's house any longer. The Judean wilderness would be his home, its caves, even pagan lands, constantly on the run, mobile, no peace, always at war. But then 2 Samuel opens with the death of Saul. And we see David anointed king once again, but this time by Judah alone. And he reigns from Hebron, and he's there for seven years. But then the the resistance forces are dealt with. The entire nation anoints him as king. And he picks Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem and establishes his rule from there, builds himself a house in chapter 5 and verse 11. That's the only commentary you get on this house that David built. And then it's there, to the city of David, to Zion, that in chapter 6 we see he brings the ark of God with great celebration. And thus it is that the king dwells in his house and he enjoys rest from all 
his enemies. One thing that's striking about chapter 7 that really speaks to this rest is as you look at this chapter in light of uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and the kind of narrative pace that's built up through those four books that all cohere and go together is there's constant action. The pace of, of the action is very quick and here it slows down. Just by the nature of what's happening in this chapter, you sense the rest. It's dominated by two monologues. This is the longest monologue God has delivered since Sinai, which really helps you see that, once again, a covenant is being made because covenants define the relationship, and when a divine covenant is being made, it's God who defines the relationship, and man just listens to how things are going to be. This is also the second longest monologue that we have recorded of David in First and Second Samuel. So it gives you the impression of this rest that David's enjoying. So the king lives in his house. <clears throat> There's rest. But the king's heart is not at rest. He's troubled. And he brings his unrest to Nathan the prophet, <clears throat> who knows the, the, the solution David is proposing implicitly to this problem that's nagging at him. There's an incongruity here. David lives in a house of cedar, while the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, while Israel sojourned in the wilderness, the incongruity wasn't there. Things were made plain and apparent. That was the king's tent. It was the grandest one among all their dwellings. It was in the center of their camp. It even deconstructed. It was central as they marched in their procession. That was the king's dwelling. That was clear. But now, David dwells in the house of cedar while the ark dwells in a tent. Yes, David is a king, but as he says himself repeatedly, as God refers to him in verse 5, he's a servant. <clears throat> David knows that God's throne is higher than his, and this is why he's troubled. Saints, the essence of sin is that we want to exalt ourselves as God. And what you see here, David as a man after God's own heart, here you see what the heart of righteousness is all about. It's the heart that cries out like John the baptizer did. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's the heart that, that any time God puts any kind of... Uh, renown or praise in our direction. Anytime He lifts us up, it sees some kind of incongruity if in that thing God is not exalted all the more. The higher God lifts any of us, whatever recognition, whatever praise, whatever renown any of us enjoy, we should be quick to acknowledge this is a good gift that comes from my Father's hand and it's not owing to who I am, but who He is. Who is your servant that you have exalted Him so? We should sing as David does in the 103rd Psalm. Yahweh has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. <clears throat> we are made in His image. We are little kings with our little dominions given to us by God. 
<clears throat> and any time any of our little kingdoms enjoy any prosperity, we should be zealous to say, our Lord rules over all. And Nathan's response to the king's proposal is, go, do all that is in your heart. Now, why would Nathan greenlight David's proposal so quickly? Some speculate, well, this is what all the pagan kings did. They go out, they conquer, and then they build a temple to the God that they said gave them, gave them their victories. I don't think anything of the sort is why Nathan is so quick to bless David's proposal here. I think two factors are at play. First is, simply, it's a good and righteous request. Go forward. Lord is with you. Too many of us, whenever we have some kind of big, bold ambition, <clears throat> we want revelation. We want God to speak. But it's not because we really want God's will. It's because we want God to bless our will. It's not because we want to be under God as a servant. We want to be like God. We don't want to fail. We don't want to look foolish. We want to be successful. But such daring endeavors as you see David putting forward here should be our default posture. Your Lord is sovereign. Be zealous for His glory. Do big, bold things and trust His providence. And if they fail, they can't fail. Because the ambition is not for you to look successful and get glory. The ambition is whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. The ambition is to glorify God and love your neighbor. And so if you, if you fail in one sense, if those are your aims, you can't fail. Go forward. Do all that is in your heart. Yahweh is with you. The second, I think Nathan had an ambition, if you will, a, a hope. That's the better word. A longing, an anticipation that God was doing what he had promised he would do in his word. It was an anticipation that anyone familiar with the law would have been earnest to see at this point where David is enjoying rest from his enemies. Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 13. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to Yahweh, and you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God. Frequently, the Mosaic Covenant will speak of this place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, and it says he will do so after his people have been brought into their rest. After rest, then God will choose a place for his name to rest among them. 
Everything looks promising for David's proposal then. But, verse 4, But that same night the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. God gives two words to Nathan for David. They both are introduced by this formula. Verse 5, thus says Yahweh. Verse 8, thus says Yahweh of hosts. The first word is a rejection of David's proposal. The second word, God's counter-proposal. And the rejection of his proposal, David's plan seems sound, biblical even. But as Del Ralph Davis says, revelation rejected reason. This has to be the greatest rejection ever received by any man for a good plan, a good ambition, the most awesome no ever spoken. David, God asked David, would you build a house, would you build me a house to live in, verse 5? It's as though the proposal is unimaginable. Why? And God gives David three reasons. First, he's not lived in a house since the day he brought his people out of Egypt to the present day, verse 6. Now, what is God saying by this? Remember the promise in the law. It's after his people enjoy rest that then he will choose a place for his name to dwell. It's as though God is saying, until you have a house, I will not have a house. Until you enjoy rest, I will not rest. Saints, what a God we serve that He says, I will not rest until you enjoy your rest in full. Through Isaiah, He promises, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Psalm 121, 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Saints, rest, knowing your God will not rest until you do. Until new creation is complete and he looks on it and says, very good. And then forever he will dwell in our midst. Second, David is not to build a house because Yahweh's not requested it, verse 7. To whom did he speak? Asking, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God will initiate, not man. The house will be built, not because it's man's proposal, but because it's God's promise. A house will be built as an expression of God's goodness, not man's goodness. And in this, God isn't robbing David. He's going to give him something greater. And then third, implicit in this first reason that we gave, is something David makes clear to Solomon in Chronicles 22, 1 Chronicles 22, 6 through 10. He called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for Yahweh, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of Yahweh my God. But the word of Yahweh came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you've shed so much blood before me on the earth. 
Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So David was a man of war. The rest that David is enjoying at this point is a temporary lull. As verses 10 and 11 will soon make plain, as the ensuing chapters in Second Sam and First Samuel will make Second Samuel will make plain. God has not yet given this rest. It will be something that comes in the wake of David's victories that his son will enjoy. Peace follows war. Rest follows labor. This principle stands. Saints, before there's peace, there's war. Yes, we enjoy something of the rest given to us by the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. We enjoy something of it now, but we've not yet entered into the fullness of it. Jesus' work has been finished, that's true. But the unpacking of everything accomplished by our Lord in His death and resurrection has yet to come about. All enemies are not yet under His feet. But then, when they are, then He will plant us in His promised place and forever dwell in our midst. And so we turn from this proposal being rejected to the promise extended in verses 8 through 17. God begins by reminding David of what he's done for him, how he took him from shepherding his father's flock to make him a prince over the people of God, and he gave him victory over all of his enemies, verses 8 and 9. And further, God will do more. He will make for David a great name, giving David renown and praise and glory. And then second, Yahweh will appoint a place for his people. Plant them there, give them rest from all their enemies, verses 10 through 11. Before we turn to the third promise, notice what's happened here in, in this promise that God is extending to David. The first promise concerns David. He'll make his name great. The second promise concerns the people of Israel, giving them rest from all their enemies. And these two things are intertwined. The reason why they enjoy that rest is because of the victories of the king, which lead to his renown. And his glory. King and kingdom here are wed together. What this is really saying is that the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant are intertwined inseparably. They're related. The Mosaic Covenant concerns the nation. The Davidic Covenant concerns their king. And these two things cannot be separated. You see this because the Mosaic Covenant outlines, prescribes laws regulating the king. And none of them more striking than this one that concludes Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 21. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. 
This is the king's first act, sitting on his throne to write himself a copy of the law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh as God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the Mosaic Covenant, again, relates to national Israel. The Davidic Covenant to their king, the king of this people. So again, as, as Lehman said, the, the, as the Mosaic Covenant administrated the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant administrates the Mosaic Covenant to the people of God. These covenants are united. And what they've held out in promise is coming into sharper and sharper focus as we narrow our gaze onto David and this promise being made to him. And so third... Instead of David building Yahweh a house, God says, I will build your house. Instead of David building a dwelling place for God, God says, David, I will build for you a dynasty. An offspring, a seed of David will be raised up, verse 12. And the seed will build for God a house, verse 13, a house for God's name. And God will be to this son like a father, and he will be to God as a son. And unlike Saul, God may discipline him, but he will not withdraw his steadfast love, his hesed, his covenant love from him. And thus, you see this is emphatic here. His throne will be established forever. Verse 12. Uh, chapter 7. I will establish his kingdom. In what way will he establish it? Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then again in verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. It will not depart. It will be forever. Verse 16, your throne shall be established. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is why David's name is so great. It's a forever kingdom. And this is why the nation will enjoy such rest, such blessing, is because of their forever king. This is the greatest rejection ever. David wants to build a house for God's name. And God said, I will build a house for you forever, a dynasty. And once again, just as after the fall in the garden, just as with the Abrahamic covenant, now you're looking for a singular seed through whom these blessings will come for the people of God. And David's response is twofold. First, he praises. Second, he petitions. His praise opens with awe, verse 18. Who am I, O Lord Yahweh? He's nearly speechless, verse 20. What more can David say to you? He knows that this covenant comes not because of who he is, but because of who his God is. Verse 21, because of your promise and according to your own heart. That's the source of these things. Your covenant and your desire. It reminds you something of 
David, of Moses' words to the people. Whenever he said, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's, but it's because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, as the Mosaic covenant spoke not to Israel's goodness, but to the goodness of their God, the Davidic covenant speaks not of David's goodness, but of the goodness of his God. And so David exclaims in verses 22 through 24, who is like you? And thus, who is like your people Israel? Who is like Yahweh? And thus, who is like the one people that he chose to be his out of all the peoples of the earth and the foreverness of God's people? You established your, for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. The foreverness of the people of God, you see, is related to the foreverness of the king that God is establishing his throne. For better or worse, indeed, initially for worse and ultimately for the best, King and kingdom are wed together now. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Such that whenever we come to the end of 2 Samuel and the people of God are going into exile, the judgment of God is falling upon them. It's again and again said that it happens because of the sins of Manasseh. And whenever that judgment is temporarily stayed, it's because of the penitence of the king Josiah. The king acts as a federal head. But because of God's promise here, there will be a forever king, and thus there will be a forever people, and thus a forever rest and blessedness with him dwelling in their midst. Saints, I've yet to make some connections here explicit, but it's not hard to connect the dots. And if you're following them, I'm praying that God's Spirit is, is speaking through His Word now such that you're saying, who is like Yahweh our God? And who is like His people Israel? The one people on earth that He chose, redeemed to Himself, and dwells in their midst. And then David turns bold with petition to Yahweh in verses 25 through 29, pleading, do as you have spoken. And the results of God doing as he's spoken, confirming his words are twofold. One, God is magnified in his people and the house of David is established before God. Verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever saying, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. And David goes on in the concluding verses, 27 through 29, to say, to boldly pray, to petition in this way, that the reason he does so is because God has spoken and his words are true. Oh, how small our prayers are and how timid we are in prayer as we come with our own desires. Whenever God is laying before us these epic promises that are cosmic in scope, eternal in duration, that we can bring before him with boldness and confidence, Look to God's plans, not your own. Look to God's plans and pray these kind of 
bold, big prayers. Go to the Psalms. I pray that you're remembering what we've seen in them so often. Look to the Psalms to learn how to pray in reference to God's King. That His enemies be brought down. That His rule be extended. That He be exalted in glory and be praised among His people. Because His glory is our glory. His victory, our victory. Stop trying to be so original in prayer. And pray as David does. Do as you have spoken. Stop bothering with your trite little plans. And bring something big and bold before your God. Concerning his king. Thomas Manton encourages. Show him his handwriting. God is tender of his word. Do as you have spoken. Yahweh exalt your king. Establish his kingdom. Subdue his enemies. Bring your people into their rest. Saints. You know. How the line of kings seemingly failed. Yes, Solomon built a house for Yahweh. But he also built places of pagan worship for his wives who turned his heart astray. And yet, a stump remained. And from that stump, a shoot. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. And it matters not what we see with our eyes. By faith we know the risen Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, exalted above all. His name is great. He's been given the name above all names so that every knee in heaven and earth will bow before Him. He is the seed of David whom God raised up. It's striking how God speaks of this Son whom He will raise up. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down your father's, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. David, this looks beyond Solomon. David saw Solomon's throne established. He saw his throne, his son sit on the throne. This speaks of someone that after David is in the ground, God will raise up. And it becomes even more striking whenever you look at the way that Paul opened his magnum opus, the book of Romans, saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus, who is the son of David, is manifest and vindicated, declared to this world to be the son of God by God's raising him up from the dead. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple. He is saying, He is the meeting place of God with man. Remember how John opens his letter, the word became flesh and tabernacled would be a literal translation there. It tabernacled, it tented among us. 
And Jesus is saying, though he is this, this meeting place, the, the, the house is not really built until it's broken down and then resurrected. Jesus is the true temple. He's the true builder of the house of God. And further, he was not disciplined for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. He did bear the stripes of his father. Unlike the sins of Manasseh that brought the people of God into exile, we have a king by whose righteousness we are brought home to God. And his kingdom is forever and ever. Of his rule there will be no end. But before we enter fully into the rest of our king, there is war. Before we are the church triumphant in total, we are here and now on this earth, the church militant. All enemies must be subdued and the final enemy is death. But be assured, in the raising up of God's king, God has appointed a place for his people. And there he will dwell in their midst eternally. We are already a temple of the living God, both as, as just saints indwelt by the Spirit and as the church where a Spirit is distinctly present with us. The temple was a shadow. We have entered it into something of the fullness, but the fullness of that fullness is not yet here. And so we pray. Do as you have spoken. Confirm your word. We're bold to ask because you've promised and your word is true. Do as you've spoken. Come, Lord Jesus. Make all things new. Bring us into your blessed rest fully. Make your name to dwell among us in fullness as we behold a new creation illuminated by the light of the Lamb. And until then, may your King so rule among us. May we rest assured of your presence with us by your Spirit. May your promises lead us into greater and greater praise and petition so that we cry out, do as you have spoken. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.